Well, as a part of her admission uh, procedure in a hospital, a nurse asks her patients if they're allergic to anything, and if they are, she prints it on an allergy band and then attaches it to the patient's wrists. And, and once when she asked an elderly woman if she had any allergies, uh, she said she couldn't eat bananas. So uh, imagine my surprise, she said, when several hours later, a very irate son came to the nurse's station demanding who's responsible for labeling my mother bananas. <laughs> I mean, it's easy for us to think of Jonah as being bananas. Why would a prophet of God react and respond to a command of God in the way that he did? Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we do the exact same thing. We know the truth, we read it, we see it, we even have experienced it many times, and then we do the exact opposite of what we should. And that's what we find in the book of Jonah. Uh, Roy messaged me last night when he was working on putting the slides together for this morning, and he said, um, is Jonah one, 3, 1 through 10 right? Because shouldn't we be in chapter 4? And I said, no, um, we're staying in chapter 3 for one more Sunday. Next week, we will venture into chapter 4. But today, we're in chapter 3 one more time. You can turn to Jonah chapter 3 if you'd like, though I'm not going to be there very much today. Um, last week, you know, uh, if you're joining us, we are on week five going through the book of Jonah. And, uh, you know, we tend to think that the book of Jonah is about Jonah and, uh, or the people of Nineveh. But in reality, the book is actually about what? Or more specifically, who? Because you see, the great fish is mentioned four times. Oftentimes we... Uh, I'm gonna be nervous about anything that touches my head up here today because I know even though I killed five and Adam has presumably killed one this morning, there are more, you know, if your eyes get this big when something touches the back of my head, I'll know. Um, the great fish is mentioned four times. The great city of Nineveh is mentioned nine times. Jonah is mentioned 18 times. Any idea how many times God is mentioned? 42. You see, it's about him. The book of Jonah is about God. It, it's not necessarily about Jonah, just like life for us shouldn't be about us. As followers of Jesus Christ, it should be about God. If we were to eliminate God from the book of Jonah, it wouldn't make any sense, would it? That's who our lives need to be about. And in fact, if we were to eliminate God from all of our lives, our life wouldn't make sense. We need to remember that. Last week, we talked about Jonah's obedience because just as he was disobedient, then after enduring what he endured, uh, he became obedient. And we also covered our need to be humble before God, to not take God's forgiveness and grace for granted because ultimately and in reality we don't deserve God's grace no one does the Assyrian king we read repented of his sin with the right attitude uh, maybe just maybe he prayed God would relent and not destroy us because the message that they got from Jonah was in 40 days 
It's all over for the city of Nineveh. You know, we too need to have that same attitude before God that maybe God would relent and not destroy us as we deserve, that he would be gracious towards us, that, that there are no attaboys for obedience because obedience is the right thing to do. Um, obedience isn't an extraordinary act, although sometimes we like to puff out our chest and say, that was a hard thing for me to be obedient and do, and I did it. See, God? See what I did? No, hey, look at me, God. Look what I've done. But instead, an attitude of brokenness. An attitude of brokenness. A broken and contrite heart. A grateful heart. We have so much to be grateful for as children of God. In our daily lives, it is important that we, this morning in your notes, number one, cultivate a broken and contrite heart. Now, a broken and contrite heart means recognizing our sinfulness and our brokenness and our inability to do life right and well without God, being humble, being teachable, because, man, we can be so hard-headed and stubborn, it, it usually means hitting rock bottom in our life before we are finally willing to admit that I can't, in fact, pull up myself up by my own bootstraps. Being crushed, bruised, and broken is usually a prerequisite for being healed, forgiven, and transformed, unfortunately. And if you have a broken and contrite heart right now, right here this morning, you know that it's broken and you know that it's contrite heart, it's contrite. I want to tell you that you are exactly where God wants you to be right now. That's where he wants us. Now, following David's sin with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed, he could have condoned his sin. In fact, I wonder if he didn't for a period of time, that he, he tried to ignore it. He, he could have maintained a blind spot to it, which we often do to sin. We get used to it, or we justify it, or we ignore it, and, or we like it so much that we're just, we just, we're unwilling to stop. We're unwilling to repent, even maybe knowing that it would be the right thing to do. And we take advantage, or attempt to take advantage of of the grace and goodness of God. You know, Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, he, he, it, it's like he's answering questions and then he's answering, he, he can hear the, the Romans coming up with things. And when, when Paul talks about God's amazing grace uh, and that, that the greater the sin, the greater the grace from God, and, and then he's like, okay, but, but I know what you're thinking why don't I just go on sinning so that the grace of God may abound, right? Sometimes we think that. We excuse our sin because we know. We know and we, we refuse to recognize how much God hates sin and how God is just. We attempt to take advantage of his grace. Now, David could have tried to justify it, though we all know that he wouldn't have been right. So what happened in David's life following his sin with Bathsheba and his having her husband put at the front of the line so that he would be killed? What happened? He's confronted by a friend. He's confronted by a prophet. 
the prophet Nathan, and, and, and Nathan uh, brings him a word from the Lord, and, and Nathan tells him a story. It, it, that's how we often learn and how, we, how, it's, how sometimes it's possible to sort of gently and ease someone into some hard truth by giving them an example or telling an illustration. That's exactly what uh, Nathan did for David, he, I, I heard a professor one time call it the parabolic pump fake. He, he starts telling David a story. He gets David in the air. David makes this decision and then realizes that the story was actually about him. See, he tells, he tells a story about a, a wealthy man, a powerful man who goes to this home where this, this poor family had one animal. And that wealthy and, and uh, powerful man takes the one animal that that family had away from them. And David's heart, right, burned in anger because that's not fair. It wasn't fair. And Nathan looks at David and he says, that man is you. That man is you. And what was David's response in Psalm 51? Uh, if you would turn there, please, actually. Psalm 51. This is a song, this is a poem that David wrote after having been confronted by the prophet Nathan. And instead of defending himself, this was David's attitude, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I mean, we, we, like to say, we like to say things like, that's just not fair. It's not fair that I have to go through this because that, that guy doesn't. He's not experiencing discipline in his life and he's living however he wants to. Surely, David goes on in verse 5, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Humility, brokenness, have mercy on me, God. Blot out my transgressions, cleanse me from sin. I know what I have done, and it's sin and it's evil in your sight. Your judgment and your verdict against me, I am right. You are right to judge me. And then in verses 16 and 17, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Yes, God takes sin seriously, very seriously. We must never forget that. 
Just like Jonah's running away in disobedience, God gave him a second chance. God was Jonah's salvation. God was David's salvation. God was the Ninevites' salvations. And God is our salvation, isn't he? He is a God of second chances. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God reached into our world. It's nothing that we did or could do. It's his grace. So let's cultivate broken and contrite hearts. Let's repent of our arrogance and self-centeredness when we become aware of it. Let's pray that God would make us aware of it. And let's take steps to learn how to, as John the Baptist said, and as we just sang in the song, he must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. In Micah 6, 8, it says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. He has taught you, he has shown you. And what does the Lord require? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Oh, that would have just made him mad anyway. God is our only hope of eternal peace and salvation and forgiveness of sin. And it is number two in our humility that God shows us mercy. It is in our humility that God shows us mercy, and oh boy, does he. God, the, the mercy that God showed to the city of Nineveh, he said, I'm going to destroy you in 40 days, and then he doesn't. What is that all about? Uh, I told you not to look at Jonah, but Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them this, the destruction that he threatened. And I briefly mentioned this last week and I wonder if you've been chewing on that, if you've been wrestling with the fact that does God change his mind or does he? How are we to understand this? If, if you have a King James version, it says that God repented, which is an unfortunate translation because when we think of repentance, uh, we think of that in terms of turning away from something that we know to be wrong, and God never has to turn away from something that is wrong because he never does anything wrong. The Old Testament affirms that God is unchanging, and yet at the same time, it affirms that he can and does alter his attitude towards people and the way that he deals with them. Here's an example. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11, it says, God speaks and he says, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. In other words, I wish I had not made Saul king. Then in verse 29 of that same chapter, it says, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. 
Now, doesn't that sound to you like in verse 11, he just changed his mind, and in verse 29, we're told that he doesn't change his mind. I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, how then are we to understand this? Well, the fact is, there is no inconsistency between those two modes of expression. Because actually, when God is said to change his mind, it is actually an, an accommodation to us. When God is said to change his mind, matters are being viewed from our human perspective because it appears to us that there has been a change in God, but what in fact has actually changed is our human conduct, not his. So in other words, and I'm hoping not to muddy the waters for you here, Saul was no longer the man that he had once been. He had now become persistently disobedient. The Ninevites, in reverse, had also changed direction. They changed their conduct they had turned away from evil, and so God would have been inconsistent in his attitude towards them had he responded in the same way despite the change in their behavior, right? I mean, that's what I think. I think that would have been the inconsistency because God is consistently against sin. There is no variation in his loathing of it or his determination to punish and correct and discipline sin. That is a constant with his character. But when God announces that his judgment is about to fall upon the sinful, it is a statement of what will inevitably happen if they continue on their present course. But it is a conditional statement. It is intended to alert the wayward, to bring them to repentance. And if that occurs, then God responds accordingly to the changed circumstances. That is what I see in this passage. Now, let me give one more Example, one more passage in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. This is what it says If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. The just judgment of God takes into account the attitude and the situation of those to whom his demands are addressed. So though it may not be explicitly stated, and of course the final authority is God himself, but it seems to me that the announcement of impending disaster is conditioned on continuing obedience or disobedience, uh, on continuing disobedience, just as the enjoyment of the blessings of God's covenant is conditioned on obedience. We see that through the history of the nation of Israel, don't we? I mean, God chose them, they're his people. And he chose them that they might be a witness to other nations. And he blessed them. And then, and then they get a, a bad king. And he leads the nation in a bad direction. And what does God do? Just let them be? No, he, he judges them. He disperses them. He, he, he carries out judgment. 
And then they have a king who, like the king of Nineveh here, who says, whoa, 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 wait, wait. This is all wrong. We need to reverse direction here. And we see that time and time again in the Bible and honestly in the lives of people around us and in our own lives. I don't think God just says, you know what, just... I mean, I, I, I think Scripture tells us that maybe he gets to a place where he does that. He just says, fine, that's what you want. And, and I pray that that's not where our nation is headed. That we will, as the king of Nineveh and the people in that city did, turn to him. Yeah. I just read Jeremiah chapter 18. Your phone doesn't need to read it for me. And I'm hard of hearing, and I can even hear that up here in the front. See, Peter, Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Oh, the grace of God his patience, and it is only because God responds in this way that the sinner who believes in Jesus can come to know divine acceptance. Otherwise, who then could be saved? Who then could be saved but by the grace of God? Why is it that one thief was banished from the presence of Christ and the other thief was today in paradise? What happened there on Golgotha? God was absolutely settled in his response to sin. He never waffles for a moment. He never changed his mind in relationship, in relationship to it. He said, if you remain in your unbelief, if you remain unrepentant, if you re remain rebellious, then inevitably the judgment will fall on you. And that's what will happen to you. And the thief said, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. What changed? What changed? It was his heart. It was his heart. And it is what in the humility, it is in that humility that God returned with mercy and what mercy it is for every one of us. The last point I want to make this morning is this. As runners and prodigals, our Father is waiting to pour out His grace. Oh, His grace is so amazing. We need to constantly be grateful for it, constantly recognize how forgiven we truly are, how patient he really is, how right he is, how much he loves us, and maybe even especially when he hurls those storms into our life, as he did to Jonah. He loves us, and those storms are put in our way to get our attention to soften our hearts and to draw us near to him. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. This is where we'll end verses 11 through 32, Luke chapter 15. I'm going to talk about half of this uh, parable today and then half of it next week as we then do continue in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. 
11 through 24, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons and uh, the younger son, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Sound familiar? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is a story, a parable that Jesus told that represents truth. And the prodigal son in the story certainly represents Jonah. For Jonah gathered himself up and ran away and went as far away from God as he could. He did the opposite of what a faithful and obedient prophet would do. The younger son ran away. He did the opposite of what a faithful and obedient and grateful son should do. And we too find ourselves in that place of the younger son, ungrateful, selfish, doing our own thing. Prodigal means waster, one who wastes gifts and resources. How many times in my life has that been true? I have access to the power of of the Holy Spirit, God. Uh, The Father is truly my Father, yet I don't listen to him. I don't do what he commands, even though I know in my head that it's the right thing to do. Jesus is my Savior, and I often take his sacrifice for granted. Because as a prodigal, I find myself doing whatever pleases the flesh and not those things that please God. That is one way God is using the book of Jonah in our lives. Gratefulness. This time of year, man, I don't know how many times I've heard people, not just myself, but say the last two months of just where have they gone? And as I was preparing for this message, I thought, have I even spent any amount of time in prayer, grateful and thanking God for how much he has blessed me with. It's 43 days till Christmas from today. And, and I just think, wow, we're, where's the time going? And, and I just want to challenge all of us to, to put the brake, let's pump the brakes a little bit here on our life and, and let's step back and let's, let's take some time to truly be grateful and to worship our Heavenly Father who has grace that we have never experienced before towards us, even as we are like the prodigal son. Thanksgiving Day is 11 days away. May, we, may today be a wake-up call for all of us, gratefulness, 
for what we have now and for what we will have for all of eternity as Christ followers and servants of the King because Jesus came to earth. When we hear the parable of the prodigal son, we tend to get confused on the main character as it happens in the book of Jonah. It's not the pigs, it's not the party guests, it's not even the prodigal son or his older brother. The main character of this story is who? Of course, it's the father. It's the father, and what does the father do? Possibly exactly the opposite of what we think should have been done. I mean, if it's not in the Bible and it's not Jesus speaking it, and you see a TV show or a movie where there is a child who acts in the way that the prodigal son did, how are you thinking he should be treated? We would be thinking, oh, he deserved that. He was an idiot. Look what he did. He wished his father dead. He took what wasn't his, and he went out, and he just blew it. And then he's hungry. Good for him. He should be hungry. He should work himself back into the graces of his father. That's how, that's how I would think if I'm not thinking spiritually, of course, and we have to be cautious. Ungrateful, selfish, doing his own thing. But what happens? You know, his father is keeping an eye out for his son, waiting for him to come back in repentance. Because, you know, he's not busy with his own stuff, or maybe he was, but all the while he was, he keeps an eye on the lane to see if his son might return. And when he does, he hikes up his robe and he sprints out to his son. He doesn't wait for him. And of course, one thing that I pray for the world, we see in verse 17, for the whole world, that, that we would come to our senses. And, and, that, and that occurred after God hurled a storm at him. That famine just so happened there was a famine while after he, I don't think so. That was a storm intended for his life. I mean, it's amazing how the sovereignty of God is at work and he hurls storms at us to get us to come to our senses because that is exactly what we need. Verse 18, he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. In humility and brokenness, he goes to his father and says, I was wrong. And what does his father do? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I mean, even the, the most loving and kind-hearted father in this room may not go to those measures immediately. And when his wayward son returned, he celebrated 
It was great news for him. The lost sheep had returned and was saved. So many accounts like this in scripture. So many accounts like this in our world today. So many in my own life. May we not forget that. Let's be reminded of that today. Not so that we can take God's grace for granted or so that we can use and abuse it, but so that in our humility and brokenness we can experience the mercy and grace of God. And we will. And that we may walk humbly with our God and celebrate. When, when others we know, when your neighbor who's just or that family member, they're just so much about themselves and they're just, but, but yet they seem to be getting it all. But then they also get and experience the forgiveness and mercy and grace of God in their life. And they get adopted into the family of God. We should celebrate with them. We should celebrate when others that we know, people living evil and sinful lives, experience the grace of God and are saved. And so we must receive the warning that we are given in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Jonah. We must beware lest we develop the attitude of Jonah. And we're going to talk about this next week. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is that not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I wanted to run away. I knew you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God, why did you have to go ahead and save these people? How strange from the lips of a prophet. How strange. Jonah certainly had his theology correct because that's exactly who God is. But his bad attitude. Man. We're going to tackle that bad attitude next week. As we look at the sulking servant, may that not be true of us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that you clearly tell us that, that Jesus, you told us that you were the way, the truth, and the life, that, the, that, that there's no way to the Father, there's no way to, to be reconciled with our Creator except through you. And that if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus, you were and are the Messiah and that God raised you from the dead, then we are saved. And as we experience that mercy and that grace and that second chance and that 10th chance and that 100th chance from our patient and loving God, may we also love and approach and proclaim that good news to others who haven't experienced it yet. Help us, Lord, to cultivate a broken and contrite heart in our life that we would not think too highly of ourselves, but that we would serve you, that we would love you, that we would follow you. Thank you for all those who are gathered here today. And Lord Jesus, with this last song, so many stories, so many reasons, so much forgiveness. 
May we praise you with our voices as we close today in Jesus' name. Amen.